Welcome to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. My name is Mary Appleton and I'm Changeboard's Chief Editor. You can subscribe to this podcast and listen to all of our previous episodes by visiting iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher. Just search Changeboard Future Talent Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mark Wilson, Group Chief Executive of FTSE 100 insurance giant Aviva. Mark joined Aviva at the start of 2013 and has been credited with rebuilding the company's financial strength after it suffered in the wake of the global financial crisis. Aviva is now the largest insurer in the UK and a UK top 30 company, operating in 16 countries with around 33 million customers and £475 billion worth of assets under management. The company is at the forefront of the digital revolution in insurance and was named UK Business of the Year 2017 by the London Evening Standard newspaper. In this podcast, I talked to Mark about the transformation Aviva has been on since he took over and what skills he believes it takes to take your people on a journey of culture change. He also talks about his plans for digital transformation in the insurance sector and what companies can do to become good ancestors by creating sustainable long-term legacies. So thanks so much for joining us this afternoon, Mark. You're no stranger to restructures and have been credited with refocusing and rebuilding Aviva's financial strength, taking the company's market capitalisation from £11 billion to over £20 billion. What would you say are the key leadership skills or attributes that have helped you to do that? Well, Mary, I think the first one is, I guess, is having the courage to take decisions. And I think too many CEOs globally just think they can go in there and manage a business uh, without making fundamental change to people and strategy and balance sheet and the financials of the business. And so this, the things you need is the ability to have the high-level strategy, so absolute clarity in the strategy, the ability to take decisions, and the ability to get into the real, real detail on the execution. Um, you know, when in charge, you've got to take charge. And when you're doing restructurings or transformations, you've got to take those decisions. You won't get them all right, but uh, you'll find that out soon enough. I mean, fundamentally, I believe that crisis and consensus are two words that just do not go together. And when you're in a crisis situation in a business, uh, you have to make decisions. And so... With the restructuring that you've done within Aviva, can you point to a couple of specific initiatives that you've driven within the business that you're particularly proud of? Well, I think there's uh, a number of key things that uh, at the time felt difficult. And when you look back with the benefit of hindsight, uh, seem right. We did spend a lot of time at the start thinking both about the strategy, but more than the strategy, it was about the culture of the business. And I believe that culture eats strategy for breakfast, <laughs> um, and it always has. And one of the things I guess we got right early that was pretty controversial at the time was just something as simple as our values. And our values, we decided uh, very early on, we wanted to make them few of them. There's only four. We wanted to make them edgy and totally different. And when we first launched it, the middle management of the organization hated it. They rebelled against it. Now we're at the stage a couple of years later that if we dared change the values, we'd have a revolt in the organization. 
right. those very same values. And we made them short, simple, edgy. You don't see them on plastic boards around the company, but you try and live them and you try and use them as the framework for decisions. And they are, the first one's called Create Legacy. It's about being a good ancestor. It's about thinking long-term. The next one is about care more. Fundamentally, that means just doing the right thing, making the right decision, just caring more, whether it's about customers, society, staff, colleagues, whatever. Just about make the right decision, just care more. Third one is uh, never rest, which is a bit controversial at the time, and it doesn't mean you don't get any sleep, although sometimes it does. <laughs> But it's about never being satisfied with the status quo, always having a desire to do different, to reinvent it, understanding that our very best is never going to be quite good enough for the customer. That's called never rest. And the last one is called kill complexity. And when we launched that, we realized we had a problem in our business with complexity, and we decided we need, you know, it's a kill complexity. And people said, you can't have the word kill in a value. <laughs> of course you can't. Well, we decided, of course, we could. And we had raging debates in the organization that we just stuck to it. And now uh, no one would want to change any of their values. So that's a good example. But there's, there's plenty of more. Um, some of the big decisions involve people. You can't have transformation. You can't have change without changing your senior team. And I changed about 70% of my senior team. Mm -hmm. And management theory would suggest maybe 40 is a minimum, but we changed 70. A lot of them were internal promotions. We pulled people from within the organization. Some were external. Uh, there was only two that I, people I brought with me that, uh, that understood me and that I trusted, but I didn't want to populate the business with people that worked with me before to a large extent. And so it was promotions, externals. But I did change 70%. And some of those changes for simple things like values, they didn't have uh, the right value set that I wanted in the business going forward. Okay. And how would you describe the culture of the business now, today? Um, still a work in progress. If anyone thinks the culture is right, well, they probably need to get another job. And um, <laughs> uh, the culture of the business now is quite fast-paced. Uh, we... Uh, got a business partner in another country recently in the fine organization and they said well you move fast as an organization I still think we move at you quite slow it's quite fast-paced uh, it does live the values like never rest uh, it's quite challenging and edgy and and that's very deliberate um, it's still quite technically based which I think we need to get more customer based okay um, it is um, I think we're still on a journey on encouraging diversity, and we're getting much better at that, but we're not where we need to be. Uh, but the organization does, I think, welcome change. And one thing for sure, uh, the world is, uh, this is probably the slowest pace the world is going to change. Mm. It's only going to get faster. And the organization's starting to embrace that. Um, so the culture's a work in progress, and we do measure it a lot. Some things we got right. There's... Uh, absolute belief in the strategy. I think we're the highest ranking company ever in terms of understanding and belief in the strategy from mm -hmm. the surveys. Uh, there's a lot more pride in the organization and there's a lot more honesty. And I think the thing that's most toxic in organizations, the first job of any CEO is to get an organization to understand that it needs to change. And often that's the hardest step. 
So talking about change and culture then, how have you been changing the culture of the organisation to become more digitally focused? Can you give us some examples of initiatives you're driving currently? Well, I'll tell you how we made a mistake first and that we had the great thought of of digital strategy a few years ago and we put the resources behind it and after 12 months, we'd spend about 80 million pounds and achieve precisely nothing, zero, nothing. Uh, No innovation, no real progress, no new customers. It it just wasn't working. And uh, then I was judging a hackathon in in Shoreditch in the UK, and I was judging this hackathon and giving out an iPhone or two, and you'd had these uh, young stars, not from our company, from other tech firms around the world, and they worked for 48 hours nonstop and developed these apps and these fintech things. And I realized that we couldn't do it with our culture and that we couldn't actually build our business, our digital business from within. So in the digital side, and I think we're probably recognized as having the most advanced digital business, certainly in the insurance space, and what we're doing is groundbreaking for sure. And But the best thing we did was, it was fairly controversial at the time, I guess, we pulled it right out of the business. We bought actually an old garage in Hoxton Square. Now we've bought one side of Hoxton Square. <laughs> um, we had it really very, very edgy um, and made it almost an anti-corporate type of culture. And when we launched it, I stood up and said two main things. I said, your strategy is three words, compete and cannibalize. I want you to cannibalize the rest of my business. You don't report to them. You have nothing to do with them. Here's the money that you need. Hire people. And all of a sudden, we started getting all these CVs in from all these tech firms. You know, the uh, head of design was from the gaming industry. The head of customer experience from the airline industry and so on. And all these people all of a sudden wanting to work because they wanted to disrupt within the framework of a corporate so they had a bit of job security as well. And that sort of differentiated us. And it's grown to, it's growing extraordinarily well. It's becoming a big part of our business. So I said, compete and cannibalize. And the second thing I said, because I knew the rest of the organization wouldn't like it, I said, if anyone in the management tries to block this organization, I will fire them. And the very next day, I fired two. Because they spoke out about how digital is the wrong way for the business. And I was very clear and my strategic expectations for that business. And then now what's happened is all the innovation that I've designed and built, it's infecting the rest of the business. So the whole business and other non-digital channels are benefiting a huge amount. And it's really having this wonderful effect right across the business. And it's just been a culture buster. It's been a talent grower. It's, it's quite an extraordinary thing. But... Uh, what we did at the time was brave because we had to be prepared to cannibalise the rest of our business to do it. And is it that mindset shift that you really want to kind of engender across the whole business? Yeah, it is. It's about customer first. It's about getting new thinking because, uh, and it's about skills. I know we'll come on to skills a little bit later, but it's about what are the skills we wanted. And it, it just I found myself, though, having to push them to be bolder and that doesn't mean be stupid from a risk perspective, uh, you know, where uh, our industry is quite risk adverse in actual fact. But it was about testing and piloting and speed. For example, on releases on systems, we'd do one every couple of months. Now we do one every couple of days. 
It was about using big data. We now have um, about 500 people, data scientists, big data. It's about developing that skill set and how do, they, how do you use that sort of skill set as well. But it's also as much iconic and about making that change in mindset. And I'm a big, big believer in the icons of change. And if you have a look at successful sports teams, successful religion and successful businesses, they all have three things in common. They all have icons. So, you know, if you look at religion, what religion, whether it's a cross or whatever the religious symbol there may be, or an apple or a sports team, one of my favorite sports teams, as you'd expect, is the All Blacks, uh, <laughs> given I'm a Kiwi, uh, the silver fern and the black jersey, the All Black jumper. Um, they have a value set and values, whether it be a successful sports team believes they can't lose, a religion has certain value sets, and business has value sets as well. And the third thing is rituals. What are the rituals uh, in the business or in a sports team or in a religion, whether it be prayers or uh, the All Blacks have a haka or in business? And we basically developed over time a series of rituals that people do. For example, if we have a town hall, we don't use microphones, we use round foam balls with microphones embedded. We only have one at a time. You throw them around the room yeah. to people who ask questions and they catch. And we refuse to use microphones to the point where if we dared bring a microphone into a town hall, people would say, what are you doing? <laughs> and subtle things like that. We have something called an agora, which means when you have some key meetings, an agora has four sides to it. And the speaker's in the middle standing, and the Gora's sort of like a Greek marketplace, like an amphitheater yeah. around you. Um, and there's business rituals, or how you do team meetings, or um, how you look after the customer, and rituals, icons, value set. Those are the key things that impact culture, and if you get culture right, you get the business right. Okay, fantastic. And how do you think that's translated into the response from your customers and shareholders? Um, well, frankly, the I think the staff see it first, the customer see it second, yeah. and the shareholders see it third, because it takes a while to translate through the profits. Um, you can see, though, you know, we've now grown our earnings. If you look at the shareholding, uh, I'll start actually with the staff. You can see that through the staff surveys. Um, the surveys have gone up every year, the belief and the pride and the buy-in and uh, the belief in our products has gone up. The understanding of the strategy is, I think, at record highs of any business in the UK, frankly. Mm. Um, the customers, you can see that in the customer surveys. Frankly, that's a journey as well because some of the products we are uh, launching over the next uh, six months, we think redefines the insurance industry globally. The fact that we have products that we now don't have to ask any questions on whatsoever because we use big data. The fact that you can uh, turn it off or on like you do Netflix. We think of it like Netflix for, for insurance. So the customer sees it there. And the shareholders, uh, they see it as well. We've repaired the balance sheet. And it's not all about culture. To have the privilege to fix the culture, you had to fix the business. And frankly, the first uh, nearly two years of my team and I here we were focused on fixing the balance sheet. You know, we added something like um, 13 billion pounds of capital to the balance sheet over that first uh, few years. 
Uh, profit has increased each of the last four years significantly. Uh, dividends increased double digit now for the last few years. So the shareholders are certainly reaping some of those benefits as well. Uh, but frankly, we still have a long way to go, which again, never rest is one of our values, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. So your expectations, what are your expectations for the future of work? How do you see AI, for example, and automation transforming the way that we do business? Well, the expectations, the workforce of the future, uh, which I know, of course, in your organization is a big part of the uh, focus. Um, the reality is that in our industry, which is asset management, insurance, and financial services yeah. generally, um, it's, it's an old industry. We've been around 322 or 323 years. We started in November 1696. <laughs> So we have a bit of experience in long-term thinking. Uh, we've been around longer than some countries, frankly. And yeah. um, uh, what we needed then in our business, the whole nature of that business has changed over that time. So we used to insure everything from horses and buggies and carts um, to, to ships and sailing ships. And now we're talking about cyber insurance and autonomous vehicles. And you've still got pensions and all that side of the business as well. So the skill set you need is different. And before you would have thousands of actuaries, for example, churning up mathematical calculations, the same calculations I can do on my phone in a couple of seconds. And so the skill set changes. And what we've said is that the skill set changes in a digital world should be embraced and not feared. So for example, I currently have 1,500 actuaries in my business now. Uh, and the actuaries, for those of the people that listen to the podcast, are basically think of them like super mathematicians that make assumptions and price products and value companies like ours. Uh, the reality is now I don't need anywhere near that number, probably half that number, maybe less. Yet that same mathematical skill set, I am desperate to find more people with that same skill set to be data scientists. And the interesting thing is supply and demand is a wonderful thing. I'm willing to pay more money for a data scientist than I am for an actuary now. And so the answer, I guess, from a HR perspective is pretty obvious. It's about retraining. And we have a program. In fact, I was talking to one of the individuals on Friday who's been through the program, who's given me the feedback, who were retraining actuaries to be data scientists. Uh, because yeah. universities don't put out that skill set. You know, I'm desperate to find them at a senior level. And they're adding a huge amount of value to my business. We're sort of a world leader in data scientists and, and data, uh, big data. Mm. Uh, for example, uh, technically I could get 500,000 pieces of data on you. That's publicly available or we derive it by our algorithms and we use that to underwrite you, whether it's your house or, or anything else that we're yeah. insuring. And, and so the skill set of the future is changing. The skill set of dealing with customers is changing. And, uh, but what I need now is more customer people who understand customer propositions and you know, there's still people that want to talk about on the phone rather than on a digital way. And it's, it's about blending all those skills together and making it work. Um, I have some of my people who are fearful of it. Mm. And I use an example about, you know, we used to insure horses and buggies, and one of the big jobs back then was a whip maker, you know, to whip the horses yeah. when, um, and the horses and buggies. 
that's not that sort of skill set making whips isn't really that much in vogue at the moment. <laughs> and um, you know, we don't have many horses and buggies driving up the street. But uh, the, you know, what skill could those people change to over the years and how did it develop? Change is inevitable. The question is, how do you bring your people along with it? Okay. And so on a macro row level then, society, as we've touched on, is going through a huge digital transformation at the moment. So how can organisations, you know, beyond your sector, ensure that they're digitally inclusive and no section of society is left behind? What would be your advice? And, and uh, particularly vulnerable sets of parts of society uh, is important as well. And uh, particularly for an industry like ours and... You know, the reason that our industry is uh, one of the oldest industries in the world is because we have a you know, role in society that you've got to do. Yeah. And you know, we take that uh, as a critical part of what we do. So you look at the vulnerable parts of society in, you know, in a digital world. Not everyone uh, has access to, say, for example, a computer or an iPad yeah. or whatever. How do you service them? And you've got to have hierarchies within your service organization where it flips over to voice or telephone or face-to-face or whatever. And we see ourselves and we have teams that specifically look at that in any new part we do. Um, We are very cognizant of the fact that not everyone will use the new channels. But equally, we're equally cognizant of the fact that we want to encourage people to use digital and direct, it's more efficient, customers get a better deal, it's much cheaper, the world is getting disintermediated, so how do we do that? You know, even in medicine, we've got, we also uh, using big data in our skills, and we're investing in businesses that are aligned to us. For example, we've invested in businesses recently in terms of a cancer test that you basically breathe into a, um, into a device and it tests for cancer. Okay. various types of cancer so we do quite significant investment on the, in innovation yeah. and medical and other forms of things that actually help our business as well and everyone wins so this is a multifaceted approach and the world is quite quite complex and one of our roles is to try and simplify it down okay and You're a champion for sustainable business and a key commentator on the role of business in society. Yeah. What does being a good ancestor mean to you? You touched on that earlier. Well, um, we we see ourselves as a very old business and I see it as part of our role in society as, as being a champion on sustainability and... Uh, you've got the global sustainable development uh, goals, and it's something I'm personally very uh, active in. And part of that as a business is enlightened self-interest, and in that I have the strong view unless business takes an active role, you won't have business because society will be in all sorts of problems. And so I call it enlightened self-interest, and I think it's high time that more business and more commentators started seeing it as good for business, not bad for business, because I think sustainability is very good for business yeah. as long as you embrace it. Um, and what our role is and, and the business role is actually looking at that and saying, how can we impact it? Now, a company like Aviva, we've got you know, around about, I don't know, uh, 800 billion close enough in terms of investment assets, Yeah, uh, US. And we invest in a lot of companies and we can influence their, uh, the way they think or choose not to invest in them if they don't take a view on sustainability. And we are doing that. And we've made some fairly 
significant calls in some of the businesses we invest in. We've decided with our shareholder funds we are exiting all tobacco okay. because uh, we have a uh, problem both from a long-term business perspective and from a social perspective with a product where when it's used appropriately as it says on the tin that you know, 70% of its customers will die from a smoking-related illness. Yeah. We have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we took the choice at the board level that we would divest from our shareholder funds all tobacco holdings. And we make the choice on influencing decisions on, for example, black energy, uh, you know, polluting energy uh, sources. What are they doing to develop sustainable energy? What are they doing to uh, the carbon footprint? What are they doing in other sustainable roles? Um, what about things like the living wage and and how you pay people and what's the right way to treat your staff? We have uh, policies in place right through our whole supply chain on that now. Because we believe it's incumbent on business not just to make a profit. The role of business isn't to make a profit. It's a fundamental necessary outcome, but the role of business is fundamentally it's got to have a social purpose or it won't survive. There's never been one business in history who survived long term with its objective of just making money. Money's a necessary outcome as is growth, and but to grow you need a role, you need to have a purpose, you need to have a social use. And our business has had that for a long time and we believe that in some of these social debates we must also participate in them to make sure we are relevant going forward. Okay, and what would you say is Aviva's social purpose? Well, Aviva's social purpose is we allow life to continue. We take the uncertainty out of life. Think about (laughs) if you didn't have a business like us. Um, You couldn't have got here in a car today. You couldn't have taken a plane trip. If if someone wasn't insuring the plane and the liability associated with it or even the physical plane, it wouldn't operate. What about the transport system? Um, What about ensuring the premises that you're on? What about uh, paying your people and providing pensions for your people? Um, Our financial services broadly, if, if it's done the right way, is the whole oil that makes society work. What part of your life, if you get up in the morning, um, let's say um, uh, uh, one of your employees slips as they go home and breaks a leg, what happens? We allow all Mm. of that stuff to happen. We can take away that fear and that uncertainty and we just help it all to work. I guess we're defying uncertainty when you think about it. That's our social purpose. Okay. And I'm sure you are getting asked this question a lot at the moment. How do you envisage Brexit impacting on the business and what steps are you taking to prepare? Brexit's an interesting thing and like every other change in the world, you've got to to adapt to it. Now, we're in the, I guess, uh, position that a lot of the companies in the UK would be somewhat envious of, that from an operational perspective, it really doesn't impact us at all. Yeah. Um, We have subsidiaries in other countries and we have different regulation even right around Europe. There's no such thing in my industry as a single market. It actually doesn't exist around Europe even. Mm-hmm. So from an operational perspective, not much. Uh, from a UK perspective, we're very active in the debates and involved with government and diverse bodies uh, giving our input. Uh, and we're really not shy about giving our input on all <laughs> these issues. Um, so from an operational perspective, not much. From a UK perspective, it, it is a momentous decision uh, the British people have given, have spoken. Uh, I think we need to respect uh, what they said and we need to 
therefore prepare for a UK outside Brexit. Okay. And so January 2018, for the new year ahead then, what's your top of your agenda within Aviva from a people and a wider organisational perspective? Um, for, for 2018, it's still focusing a lot on culture. We're putting, we put a significant investment in 17 in terms of training some of our leaders. The fact is that a lot of our middle uh, managers had never really been taught how to lead. They hadn't really been taught how to manage people. They hadn't been taught how to give people freedom. They hadn't been taught judgment. And we spent a significant amount of money last year in terms of in programs with some external uh, advisors as well about developing that. Uh, I had many sessions with them personally talking about you know, my leadership style, where it was good and where it was bad and, and, and how I've adapted over time. We spoke about what I expected from them. Uh, we spoke about things, we had external speakers on things as simple as storytelling, which is a key part of a leader's role, if, if, uh, if you're a visionary leader at least. So 2018 is about culture. It's about uh, narrowing down the focus of the organization. I think our focus had been too big, and I'm saying, no, let's stop doing all this stuff and focus on, for each individual, what are the three things you can achieve this year that will make a difference in the business? Whether you're in HR or communications or sales, or it doesn't matter what your role is, mm -hmm. but what are the three things you actually want to achieve specifically this year? And too many organizations now are getting what I call weasel words, words and strategies and objectives that really don't mean much. And I want to focus it down to the things that really, really make an impact in the business. And that's what we're trying to do in 2018. And what do you believe are the key capabilities or the key skills that we will all require in the future? And how are you upskilling yourself to ensure you develop them? And how can others build their own capabilities when the future is so uncertain at the moment? Well, I, I think these, there's a number of skills that that CEOs need and a CEO's job is part vision and it's part motivation of people and, and it's also part execution and uh, if you're a CEO that can only see at 50,000 feet and can't get in the detail, you have no use to me in a country or managing a business. CEOs need to, uh, or leaders generally need to see round corners. They need, I think they need three key things. They need uh, creativity, they need adaptability, they need agility. And because the world's becoming a much faster place. And there's too many leaders I see in organizations, including ours, who have got all the experience just from experience. And in a digital world, in a world that's being disrupted um, in this digital revolution, uh, you can't write books on this stuff because it hasn't been done before. Mm. So that whole agility of thinking, managing in the gray, is one of the most important skills. How do you manage when you haven't got all the information? How do you manage when you've only got 60% of the data or when no one's ever done it before? You know, I, I learned this um, really strongly through the global financial crisis. I was the head of a company called AIA and we woke up and the parent company had of course collapsed overnight. What do you do? What do you do when you have every regulator on the phone and you've got hundreds of journalists outside your front door and it's never happened before. And the answer is you get really smart people around you and you work it out and you work it out very, very quickly. And you do it with small teams, not big teams. 
and you do it knowing that you won't get all the decisions right, but you'll find out soon enough. So these skills are seeing round corners and, and this absolute agility is important. Um, uh, and I think these skills are really underrated in today's business society, particularly in markets like the UK that can be quite bureaucratic and rules-based. Yeah. You don't see a lot of that skill necessarily locally, and we need to develop it, and we need to develop it fast, particularly in a Brexit world. And how do you think we might do that? I think it's about uh, bringing people from other industries. Uh, this is somewhat controversial, but I believe that experience is way overrated. And this comes from a guy that uh, has had, I guess, you know, 30 years experience long, yeah. in this industry. But I think experience is way, way, way overrated. And I think adaptability and uh, skill sets can be, in a digital world, more easily transferred across industries. And do you think um, there's a role for schools and education here to teach things like adaptability and agility? Yeah, I've, I've done a few university lectures recently we're actually talking about this, and I think that uh, the education system actually lags the needs of business and society in general. So, for example, I mentioned before about data scientists. You know, there's not many universities in the world that churn out decent data mm. scientists uh, because by the time they get around to doing it, it's moved on to something else. And so there is a role for schools, uh, for schools, there is a role for universities, there is something that teaches agility of thinking. Uh, I mean, when I look at people, when I hire people, I, I'm very simple in what I'm looking for. And it may surprise you, experience is not the top of the list. I look at, first of all, at senior levels when I'm hiring, I look at intellect. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the raw horsepower to process data, I don't mean you need to have to have a PhD, although you might, but I'm looking for raw intellect that can process data and deal in the gray. Uh, that's important. Yeah. Um, secondly, I look for um, people that have drive. If they have raw intellect and no drive, they're also of no use to me. And thirdly, and these aren't in any particular order, um, I look at people who have a value set that is consistent with what I want. And that's consistent. And I'm not talking about the vanilla values like honesty and integrity. Of course you've got to have those. <laughs> I'm talking about the values that you might want in a business. Things like for us it's never rest. Things like killing complexity. Yeah. Um, the skills that I want. It's that value set of how people make decisions. Those three things. Value set, intellect, and drive – Show me someone like that, and then they're the right person for my organization, and I will choose that over experience any day of the week. Oh, okay. And we've talked a lot about change today. So operating in an uncertain business climate, how do you personally keep motivated? What do you do to achieve a work-life balance? What do you enjoy doing? Well, you know, as a CEO, there's no such thing as a work-life balance. Anyone who thinks there is has never been a CEO. <laughs> or at least has never been successful CEO, because the reality is if you're in a job with that many people and and uh, going through an organization has changed, you can't have balance. What you can have is a blend of things. And there's no doubt the individual's personal life impacts their ability to work. Yeah. What I do personally is I, I try and... Um, blend a few things to I guess I think of it as body spirit and mind so uh, with me I do fitness every day and sometimes it's boxing sometimes it's gym sometimes it's tennis 
or whatever. So that's that's the body side. I keep physically fit. Um, I make sure I eat very healthily. I don't drink during the week at all. Uh, and so that's the that's the body side. Yeah. Um, the spirit is is things that enjoy whether it's reading or play the piano. So you know on a, on Sunday, for example, I had boxing on first thing. I played the piano straight after that, which sort of <laughs> like a, a, the polar opposite. Um, and the other thing is mind. Um, I do Headspace, you know the app Headspace, yes, which is yes, basically yeah. you know, I guess simplified meditation. Uh, I do that as well. So body, spirit, mind. And uh, exercise and the meditation helps me relax. It helps me think clearly. It gives me clarity of thought and focus and all those things. And that's how I do it. But there's no such thing as work-life balance. I know that's a nice word and that some parts of the organization, that's entirely appropriate. It isn't appropriate as a CEO because it doesn't exist. Okay. And finally, Mark, can you tell us what legacy do you want to leave behind in business? You know, um, uh, the legacy, the only real legacy you can leave is, uh, is people and, I guess, a culture. And if I look around various places around the world of people that have worked with in senior jobs or become CEOs or uh, whatever, and I think if I've had some influence on that, then I've done... Uh, done my job as people have had influence on me um, and the legacy you've got to leave isn't one that is measured next year or the year after or no. even five years time the only way to measure legacy if, and it's one of our values of course is to create legacy is to be a good ancestor the only way you can measure that is in five ten fifteen twenty years time and if in you know, 10 or 20 years' time, people look back and say, well, the management team in that time or the company in that time, look at what they left behind. Look at the products they developed. Look how they grew the business. Um, weren't they far-thinking and far-sighted in terms of sustainability and diversity and and all the things that are important? Um, if if I look back there and and that's how it's measured then, then that would give me a great deal of satisfaction. Frankly, right now in this moment, it's a little bit irrelevant when you measure it in that context. Okay, thank you very much indeed. You can hear more from Mark Wilson at the Change Board Future Talent Conference on March the 22nd in London, where he will be in conversation with Colin Price from Hydric and Struggles. Other speakers at the conference include Sir Lenny Henry, who will be highlighting the importance of inclusion, Alistair Campbell, who will be discussing mental health and the need to create environments where people feel really comfortable to talk about their challenges. Leading author Margaret Heffernan on the importance of friendship at work. And Lord Chris Holmes on the impact of artificial intelligence at work. Please do visit www.fdconference.changeboard.com for further information and we really look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to this podcast and we look forward to welcoming you to another Future Talent podcast very soon.